When we come to this part of a worship service, we just take time to pray. Let me just remind you why we do that. So that it just doesn't slip into a meaningless ritual. We pray because we acknowledge that unless God, by His Spirit, helps us to understand truth about Him, we can't. We can understand a lot of facts when it comes to the things of God and Christ, but we cannot understand truth in such a way that it touches our heart unless God opens our eyes and our ears. And so I want to take a few moments to pray. And for those of you who might be visiting with us this morning, and perhaps God and prayer are really not part of your life and your vocabulary, and that's fine. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Let me give you a perspective by which you can listen to me while I pray. One of the things Jesus said was, He said, whoever is on the side of truth, hears my voice. So maybe you want to say something like this as I am praying. Maybe you want to say, you know God, I don't know whether you're there or not, but if you are, I want you to know that I'm on the side of truth. I want to know what is true. And so if, since I'm on the side of truth, why don't you speak to me if you really are there? And that would be a perfectly appropriate frame of mind for you to be in while we pray. So join me as we pray together. You are glorious, Lord, and we just thank you that your glory can be expressed in art, your glory can be expressed in music, your glory can be expressed in drama, uh, in, in testimony and in prayer. So we're grateful for this morning where we get to focus on and relive to the best of our ability a truth that sustains us every day of our life. That our God is not a dead God, but we serve a living Savior. And because you are God, you still speak. As you came and spoke to those disciples in the upper room, as you said, it is me, I am He. Touch me, feel me. I'm not a ghost. And so we pray that you will do that again this morning. For wherever we happen to be in our life, you know our hearts better than we do ourselves at times. Will you speak the kind of words that are needed to inject hope and faith and energy? We ask you to energize our bodies. We ask you to instruct our minds. We ask you to inflame our hearts. That we might leave this place knowing that we have been a blessed people who can make a difference in this world. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in about three months or so, my wife and I will be traveling to Jordan. Uh, we've done that for the last couple of years. And uh, really, we have an opportunity to speak to a group of international workers. But because of various political factors governing that part of the country, we actually have the conference itself in, in a place called Taba, Egypt, which is right on, the, uh, right on the Red Sea. So we usually go to Aqaba, a port in Jordan, and take uh, a ferry across. Now, because of, again, all the political sensitivities in that part of the world, there's oodles of checkpoints over and over again. And each time we've got to take the luggage, put it on this, uh, what passes for a trolley in those places, and then we lug it off and do it all over again, even though it's just been done. And then you put it onto a bus, and then unload it off the bus. Now, we carry two boxes like that. And they're all at their limit of 50 pounds each, and you can decide who contributes to most of the weight, Okay. <laughs> She's not here in this service, so I can say that. <laughs> well, and guess who gets to pick it up and put it back down? <laughs> Fortunately, I can do it. <laughs> well, what really rubs it in is that we have another pastor and his wife who also come as field pastors in the same place, and they basically just have one bag each like this. They just pull it on and put it off, and then the three flights it takes to get there and the three flights to come back, it's easy for them. It's hard for us. Now, apart from minor irritation, that's okay. But sometimes heavy luggage can cause more damage. 
not too long ago i was talking to a friend of mine who spent many years in uh, in russia and uh, whenever he and his wife would leave that place and go to some part of western europe his wife would load up on a whole lot of good stuff that they couldn't get where they were and of course he had to lug all these heavy bags and he ended up with a double hernia that needed surgery you know so bags can do all those things for you from just a minor irritation on the one hand to things that require surgical repair but they still can get relatively easily fixed but we all in life we deal with other kinds of baggage too we deal with baggage that ends up causing damage inside of us life experiences our own choices actions of other people in our lives they all end up creating baggage that we carry that has deep psychological effect in our life sometimes it is like a long arm from the past that comes and trips us up often in our relationships and in this series of three messages today and then the next two weekends we want to look at three kinds of baggage today i want to talk specifically about the subject of failure next week pastor mark is going to be talking about addictions of various kinds not just the common word that comes to mind we think of addictions and then two weeks after that pastor chris is going to be talking about the burden of unforgiveness and bitterness in our lives and if you're able to get take in all three of them that would be great but this morning i want to talk about failure now nobody likes to fail that extremely wise counselor named dear abby many years ago wrote an article suggesting that it might not be a bad idea for parents to allow their children to fail once in a while she got over 700 angry responses disagreeing with her we don't like to fail but failure is an inevitable part of life and we don't forget it easily i remember a time even now i was in grade 11 at that time that was a long long time ago i didn't make it to the, the high school cricket team and for several weeks i remember having one dominant feeling i'm going to show those people who didn't choose me it went after a while but even that simple failure hung on there for quite a while so we got failures and we need to deal with them and as i continue thinking about the subject i realized there were various kinds of failures excuse me happens once in a while excuse me okay now there are some failures of failures where we can try and keep trying until they work like this one just now a few moments ago <laughs> these are what i call failures that are the front door to success let me give you some examples jonas salk he attempted 200 unsuccessful vaccines for polio before he came up with one that worked so edmund hillary he made several unsuccessful attempts at scaling mount everest before he finally succeeded every time hillary climbed he failed and every time he failed he learned and one day he didn't fail and then there was thomas edison he filed an impressive 1093 patents with the us patent office and behind each one of those 1093 successes lay hundreds and sometimes thousands of failures and then all of you or most of you know wd40 eh? remember wd40 you know what the wd stands for water displacement do you know what 40 stands for there were 39 failed attempts before they succeeded that's why it's called wd40 now these are all examples of failures where we just continue to persevere until we succeed they're the front door to success but there's another class of failures where this doesn't work that way for example there are failures that get fixed in our memory and haunt us for an entire lifetime in spite of subsequent successes the year was 1941 
The University of Texas uh, football team, the Longhorns, were ranked number one in the nation. And they were playing their conference rivals, Baylor University, for an undefeated season and a berth in the Rose Bowl. They were leading 7-0 and in the second half their quarterback launched a deep pass to a wide open wide receiver. His name was Jonas Salk. Das, and the ball was thrown right on target and Jonas dropped the ball. Baylor recovered very quickly, tied the score and they went on to defeat Texas. Long, gone was the dream of an undefeated season and they didn't make it to the Rose Bowl as well. Now it wasn't as if this man did not have successes. He had six decades of a happy marriage. He had children and grandchildren. He made the cover of Life magazine with his Texas Longhorns teammates. I think he caught something like 70, intercepted 17 passes during his collegiate career, which was a record. He won two NFL titles with the Philadelphia Eagles. Most fans remember all the plays that Doss made, but not him. Once upon meeting a new Texas Longhorn coach, Doss told him about the bobbled ball. It had been 50 years since that event happened. And he was still sobbing when he told the story. There are some failures that are so deep that even all kinds of successes afterwards don't wipe them away. And then even if you somehow manage to forget them, sometimes other people don't let you forget them. Oh, by the way, I discovered why this is so. It's something called the Zygarnik effect. This guy uh, described it this way. He said, failures take on a life of their own because the brain remembers incomplete tasks of failures longer than any success or completed activity. It's technically referred to as the Zygarnik effect. When a project or a thought is completed, the brain places it in a special memory. The brain no longer gives the project priority or active working status, and bits and pieces of the achieved situation begin to decay. But failures have no closure. The brain continues to spin the memory, trying to come up with ways to fix the mess and move it from active to the inactive status. That's why we don't forget it. As a, but I said, even if we do, what about those failures that other people won't let you forget? <laughs> Baseball season is starting again. The Jays have won their first two games. My Red Sox have lost two again, you know, to begin the season. Doesn't sound good at all, yeah. But you know, I'm an eternal optimist until September comes along. Yeah. Anyway, this was 1986. The Red Sox were in the World Series with the Mets. Some of you might actually remember that. Yeah. It's a very rare event, but they were in the World Series. They hadn't won a World Series since 1918. But this time it looks like they were going to win. Three games, they were leading three games to two. It was the bottom of the ninth. They were leading in the sixth game. Two strikes and the last batter was out and he dribbled the ball towards first place. So it had been child's play. Bill Buckner let it roll right through his legs. They tied the game. They lost that game. They lost the next game and long gone was a hope. Buckner didn't outlive that memory for a long time. But I don't know whether he managed to outlive it or not. But many, many years later, he was in Red Sox Stadium, Fenway Park again. And he was actually signing a ball with an autograph. When some other person said, be careful, he might drop it. That's when Buckner decided it was time to leave Boston. Even though he forgot the failures, other people wouldn't let him forget the failures. And then what about the failures that we cannot try again? You know, those are the one shots you get at life. A failed marriage. A failed parenting. You can't reparent your children again. I remember an uncle of mine who fell asleep on the morning of a critical examination and therefore never got his certification as an engineer. What about those things where you cannot start a second time? What do you deal with those? They are not the front door to success. 
I want to take you to an unlikely place, the Bible. And we say, well, really? That only makes us even more failures. Because of all the things we're supposed to do and we don't do. But actually, if you read the Bible, you will find that it is not a record of successful people. By and large, the Bible is strewn with the wreckage of men and women who failed miserably. The reason for that is that the last word in the Bible is not human failure. The last word in the Bible over and over again is the word of a God who is gracious, who is forgiving, and who is powerful. Who forgives failures and who empowers us so that failure can actually become the backdoor to success. Even failures of the second kind. And I want to tell you a story this morning. It's a story of a man in the Bible who had a colossal failure. It was a relational failure, the kind you don't get a second chance at. And also the cause was incredibly important, far more important than a football game or a World Series. And as we all know, when you fail in a big cause, the hurt is a lot bigger because the stakes are so much higher. He had a great destiny that was painted for him. And as that destiny began to unfold, he began to get bolder. He began to make some great pronouncements about what he was going to do with his life. He began to compare himself favorably with others. Until this time of this massive failure. And everything came crashing down around him. And yet he found a way back. Or I should say rather the way back found him. And he was restored. The destiny was rekindled again. And fulfilled in a way that he could never have imagined. And because stories are always so much better told in first person than second person, I'm going to let you tell his story himself. His name is Peter, so will you listen to him please? Travel with me to the first century. <clears throat> My name is Simon, it wasn't always Peter. I was a fisherman who lived in Palestine in the first century. Life was hard in those days. We were under Roman rule. Fishing was not an easiest way to make a living. But I was pretty good at it and we managed to get along. Now the more religious among my people always kept looking for a Messiah. A Messiah who would come and deliver us politically from the power of Rome. As I said, I was a fisherman. I didn't have time for that kind of stuff. I had work to do. I still remember the day my brother Andrew, the fisherman with me, came to me and said, Hey, Simon, we found the Messiah. His name is Jesus. <laughs> well, you can't. Blame me for being skeptical. So many messiahs had come and gone and they all met the same fate. Rome crucified them. But at the same time, this was my brother. He was a hardened fisherman like me too. And yet obviously this Jesus, whoever he was, had affected him deeply enough that he wanted me to come and see him. So I said, okay, I'll go with you because curiosity got the better of my skepticism. When I saw him, he was just like everybody else. Nothing unusual about the man. And as for the name Jesus, well, there were all kinds of kids who were named Jesus in our society. It was a common name. But there was something about the way that he looked. at me. It was almost as if the stare was just penetrating right inside of me. And then he says, you are Simon, but you will be called Peter. Now, that's a strange thing to say to somebody when you meet them for the first time, right? Well, I couldn't figure out what he meant, so I just went back. I had work to do, you know. Curiosity was satisfied. Anyway, some time passed later and I found myself on the edge of the, the Sea of Galilee there and Jesus by now had become a well-known rabbi. There were crowds that were following him and they were just pressing him so hard he had no place to go. So he got into my boat and he said, Simon, just push out a little bit into the water so I can take some space between me and these people so I can teach them. So I sat in my boat while Jesus taught them and then he says to me, he says, Simon, 
Can you just go a little bit deeper? Okay, I did. Told you it was hard to say no to. And then he said something. He said, put your nets down again. Now you got to catch the irony of it. Here's a carpenter's son. That's who he was. Telling a fisherman how to fish. And I said to him, but we fished all night. We didn't catch anything. But because you say so, I'll do it. Expecting to show him up. To my utter shock and surprise, I pulled up the nets completely full of fish. Well, my first reaction, of course, was incredible joy. That's good. It's good for the business now. We're going to eat for a few days. And then even as I was raking in this fish, I had to call my friends to help me. All of a sudden, it began to tremble a little bit. You see, I knew there were no fish there. I know when fish bite. I wasn't then. And as a good Hebrew, I knew there was only one person who could make something come out of nothing. That's when it began to get a bit scary. And I just said, you get away from me. I want to go away from here. And then he says to me, he said, don't be afraid. From now on, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Now, I understood that as much as I understood you are Simon and you will be called Peter. I had no idea what catching men meant. But this time I, I did what he said. I followed him. Along with my brother Andrew. Of course it was good. We continued to be at the center of all the teaching, the crowds. He really did miracles. Blind people were able to see. Lame were able to walk. The deaf began to hear. And then one night... Uh, we got into a boat to get onto the other side. And as it so happens on the Sea of Tiberias, it suddenly got uh, stormy, dark. The waves started coming up. We were waving, rowing as hard as we could. And then all of a sudden, I wasn't expecting what looked to me like a ghost. And I was scared. And then I heard them say, don't be afraid, it's me, Jesus. Now, I'm an impetuous guy. I usually speak before I think. And so I said, oh, well, if it's you, Jesus, make me get up on the water and walk with you. I shouldn't have said that, right? Because he said, okay, get up. And I did. There were all these people before me. I had boasted. I had to do it. And you know what? The water was like rock underneath my feet. I was actually walking on the water. It didn't last very long, though, because I took my eyes off Jesus, looked all around, saw the waves, and I began to sink, and he had to pull me out. But for a few brief moments, I actually walked on the water. Anyway, some time passed, because Jesus was always on the move, and we were on the move with him. And by now, opinion was polarizing. There were people who were just fascinated with Jesus and there were others, especially the religious elite who couldn't stand him and they were looking for ways to trap him and get him into trouble with Rome. And so he took us aside one day and he said, who do people say that I am? Well, we, we heard the scuttlebutt, you know, and some people said, oh, he was Jeremiah, somebody said he's one of the Old Testament prophets who's come back. And then he turned to us and he said, but who do you say that I am? And again, I blurted out. But you know, this time it wasn't different. It wasn't some unthinking speech. But it wasn't me speaking. I, I, I don't know what gave me the words to say. It was almost as if the words were coming from somewhere else. I said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That, that's our way of saying, yes, I recognize you. You, God, are the Messiah. And Jesus says to me, human intelligence didn't teach you that, Peter. Flesh and blood didn't show it to you. But my Father who is in heaven. It, it, you have been the recipient of divine revelation. And then he says, you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. 
I see now I understood that statement. You are Simon, but you will be called Peter. Because in, in, in Hebrew thinking, names carry a sense of destiny. And this was my destiny. I had become for a few moments, not just a man who walked on water, but like one of our own prophets, I had become a mouthpiece of divine revelation. I had recognized Jesus for who he really was. And upon that confession, God was going, Jesus was going to build his church. Hey, I was on cloud nine. How could it get any better than this? <laughs> this was great. I'm so glad I stopped fishing. I didn't know it, but I was just headed for a huge crash. And it didn't take very long to start the downward trend either. I didn't know where it was going to end up. Very, very shortly after I made this confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, he began to talk about how he was going to go to Jerusalem he was going to be handed over to the enemies and they were going to torture him and kill him. That's no talk for a Messiah. And so I immediately, you know me, I always speak first, I immediately said, no Jesus, that will never happen to you. And he turned around and I wasn't used to being spoken like that by anybody, let alone Jesus. And he said, you get behind me, Satan. You have become a stumbling block to me. You're not thinking the thoughts of God, you are thinking the thoughts of a human being. Hey, one moment I was a recipient of divine revelation. I was a mouthpiece of God. Now I'm a mouthpiece of Satan. One moment I was a foundation stone for the church. Now I've become a stumbling block to Jesus. That's pretty hard to take. So the euphoria didn't last very long. But again, you know, things happen so fast, they didn't have to dwell on it too long, because there was another little high moment. Jesus took me along with Pete, James and John. We were three of us with his inner circle. He took us to this mountain where he would often pray. And Jesus often did that. He often went away alone and prayed and he took us with him. And while he prayed, we slept. I'm not much of an all-night prayer meeting guy anyway, you know. So I used to fall asleep while Jesus was praying. Only this time, all of a sudden, this, his ordinary clothes, he was just like anybody else, just began to shine so brilliantly. It was just lit up the whole scene around us. And there were these two other people that had appeared that were talking to him. Now I was close enough to hear the conversation. By now, of course, I was wide awake. And they were talking to him about two of our Old Testament prophets. They were talking to him about what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. It was about his suffering again. The stuff I didn't want to hear about didn't make sense. And so again I said, hey Jesus, why don't we just build three tents here? One for me, one for you, and one for these guests of yours. You know, kind of keep the glory to ourselves. And then again, all of a sudden, it got dark. A cloud came upon that place. And a voice began to speak. And for us as Hebrews, when a voice speaks out of a cloud, that probably means it's God speaking. And I guess I'd blown it again, because he said, Peter, listen, listen, listen to my son. I guess he was saying, listen to what he's talking about, what's going to happen to him. So I guess I got it wrong again. Well, anyway, we entered Jerusalem one more time. And it was euphoric again. You know, I forgot all my problems one more time. There was a crowd all around us. Everybody was shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Messianic fervor had reached a pitch that we hadn't seen for so long. Maybe this was it. Maybe this is what's going to happen. Maybe all that talk about suffering in Jerusalem wasn't really true. Maybe he got that part wrong. He was getting close to Passover time and he had prepared a place for us and we sat down and had the last Passover meal. And then he said again, he said, 
I'm going to be arrested in a few moments and guess what? All you guys are going to run away from me. Not me. Not me. Jesus, you got me wrong. <laughs> Everybody, no, no, no. I, I'm going to go with you. I'll follow you wherever you go. <laughs> and Jesus said, well, it's actually predicted in the scriptures that it's going to happen. And Simon, Satan, the same guy that you, he spoke through you to deter me from this cross, He's desired to sift you and get you all messed up, but I prayed for you. But I ignored all of that stuff. All I could hear was, everybody's going to follow me, and I wanted to tell him, it isn't going to be me. And so I said, I am ready to follow you even to death, Jesus. And then he made it even more specific. He said, Simon, not only are you not going to be able to do that, before the cock crows, before daybreak, you will deny me three times. Didn't register on me at all. I said, Lord, you're not getting it. You're not listening to what I'm saying. They may all run away, but I never will fail you. Well, things happened after that in a real blur. He was arrested. Judas, one of our own, it seemed, betrayed him. And we all ran away. We were afraid. When the moment came, we were afraid. But John and I didn't run as far as the rest of them. And we started following Jesus back as he was taken to the high priest's home and the courtyard to be interrogated into the courts. John knew somebody on the inside, so he managed to get himself in and myself in there. And there, it was getting cold and there was a charcoal fire there and I was warming myself. And one of the guys around me said, Hey, you were with him, weren't you? I didn't want to identify myself with Jesus. At this time, unless I got arrested, I said, no, I don't know this man at all. And then somebody else said to me, hey, we know you, you're a Galilean. You see, I come up from Galilee, and there our accents are a lot different than the people from Jerusalem. He said, you're a Galilean, you were with him. No, I wasn't with him. And then there was a servant girl. He said, yeah, you were with him. And this time I lost it. I, even, I called on curses upon myself, which is our way of saying I'm really telling the truth. I didn't know this man. Two things happened at that moment. I looked up and there was Jesus just coming out after his trial. He had heard every single denial. I will not forget to look as his eyes and mind locked horns. And at that same moment, the cock crew. Me, Simon who had become Peter, the foundation stone for the church. A man who had worked on, walked on water. The recipient of divine revelation. I couldn't even acknowledge him before a servant girl. Me who had boasted that I would follow him till death. Was worse than the rest of them. I had not known anguish and pain like that. My body was racked with sobs. You know the kind of sobs that come from deep down within here. That you cannot stop. And you know what made matters worse? This Jesus who I was sure was the Messiah. Ended up being crucified. And crucifixion was a punishment form that was invented by the Romans. And reserved for the worst kind of criminals and thieves. Insurrectionists, traitors treasoners. So not only was my life a hopeless failure, the one whom I thought was the Messiah for whom I had made all these pronouncements, he was a hopeless failure as well. So what do you do? 
What do you do when you fail like that and there's no hope? There's no second chance for this. You don't get to do this again. So you do the only thing you know, you go back fishing. To what I was doing that fateful day when Andrew first came to me and said, Come here, we've seen the Messiah. And so I went and six of my friends decided to join me on that. And you know what? We fished all night and we caught nothing. I guess I wasn't very good at fishing either anymore. Anyway, by now it was daybreak. Long past the time when fish bite. And so we were coming back within 300 yards of shore, wading depth. And all of a sudden there was a stranger on the shore and he waves a hand. He says, hey, did you catch anything? No. Why don't you put your nets down one more time on the other side? I guess what's there to lose? I was so disheartened at this point. So we did. And almost immediately, felt the tug on the net. And we pulled up the net full of big fish. Two things happened again. First of all, in my mind, there was a flashback. When did this happen before? When did another, somebody say to me, let your nets down one more time? And it came up full. And at that moment, John, who was the most perceptive of us all, he didn't talk like I did. He used to think a lot and reflect. He said, it is the Lord. Well, that was all I needed. I put my outer cloak on because I'd taken it off. I jumped into the water. It was wading depth. Pulled the boat behind me. Got onto the shore. And sure enough, it was Jesus. He was alive. The cross was not a failure. Even a Roman cross could not kill him. And there was a charcoal fire that was burning there. And you know, the last time I saw a charcoal fire was in the courtyard where I was warming myself. The three times where I denied it. Oh, was he trying to underline my failures? I I didn't want to hear the words that would come out next. Simon, I was counting on you. What happened to your boasting? But he didn't say anything like that. All he said was, have breakfast. Here's some fish and some bread. And then he took me aside. The people could still hear. He said, Simon, do you love me more than these? I don't think he mentioned the boats. They're old boats, patched up nets. I think he meant, do you love me, Simon, more than all these other people? Oh, I'd learned my lesson well this time. I said, Lord, you know. Well, he said, well, then feed my sheep. Okay, I got it. Then he says to me again, Simon, do you love me more than these? Well, God, didn't you hear the first time? I didn't say that. So I thought it. I said, Lord, you know. You know. Well, then tend to my lambs. Okay, I get it this time. Then he says again, Simon, do you love me? At this time. I couldn't control my Well, Lord, you know everything that's in my heart. You know that I love you. And then it suddenly dawned on me. Why three times? You see, I had denied him three times publicly. He wasn't bugging me. He wasn't irritating me. He was restoring me. Each failure was being restored with a reaffirmation of my destiny. And he did it publicly so nobody else could remind me either of my failure. And if you want to know the rest of my story, if you want to know how Christ through his power actually enabled me to fulfill that destiny of feeding the sheep and tending to the lamb. You can read it all in the Bible. It's called the book of Acts and it tells the story of the rest of my life. You should read it sometime. It will tell you how well Jesus restores failures. You know, our, our failures may be very different in nature than Peter's. But the good news of Easter is that precisely because Jesus rose from the dead, it makes sense to say things like, we can have a personal relationship with Christ. 
Because he's living. He, Jesus is not an idea about whom we have theological assertions. He's a living Savior. And, and today he wants us to take the baggage of our failures and bring them to the cross. Because there, he, he breaks the power of those failures to accuse us. He breaks the power of other people's reminders of our failures to accuse us. There, he gives us a fresh beginning. Because he can get as deep or deeper than our failures can. And he can restore us to a bigger and a greater destiny than we've ever had before. But the way to him, but the way to the cross, begins with an acknowledgement of a particular kind of failure that all of us are guilty of. You see, there are some failures that some of us fail at, others haven't. Those are failures that are unique to us. But there is one colossal failure that every single human being is guilty of, only we don't even know about it, many of us. That's the first failure that has to be brought to the cross before all these other failures can be dealt with. It too was the failure of a relationship. It was a failure of a relationship between human beings who were created to worship God and God himself. For in the opening chapters of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, it describes creation and then it describes the apex of creation which is human beings. And when God made the first man and woman, he put them in a glorious environment where every physical need was satisfied. They were a man and a woman in a perfect relationship of intimacy. The Bible describes it as nakedness without shame, which is a powerfully graphic way of saying they were completely comfortable with the way they had been made by God. They were completely comfortable with somebody else seeing the way they were. Total intimacy in a horizontal direction. And they were totally comfortable in the presence of God. Total intimacy in the vertical direction as well. So all physical needs provided for, all emotional and relational needs provided for in a perfect environment. That was how creation started. But because it was creation with a moral dimension, because God is God and human beings are not, there was a moral dimension to this relationship because God made them moral creatures. And so he said to them, there is one little thing I want you to not do. All this is free for you. You can eat what you want, drink what you want, celebrate each other, celebrate your relationship with me in this perfect environment. But just so you know you are moral creatures with free will, just don't eat the fruit of this particular tree. Now, there wasn't anything magical about that tree in one sense because there were all kinds of fruit that was good to look at, desirable to eat, just like the fruit of this tree was described. But, get this carefully. But they decided to break the commandment, not because there was any need to do so, but just because they could do so. They use their free will to assert their independence of God. Incited by the same Satan that was later to harass Peter. That's the quintessence of sin. Not this particular or that particular bad deed. But an attitude of independence of God. I will call my old shots God. You may be there, you may not be there, but I am the boss of my life. That's what the Bible calls sin. That's the fundamental failure. Because God is holy too. And so there was a fracture that day. The Bible calls it sin. We call it alienation. We experience it as alienation. First of all, there's alienation within. We are no longer comfortable with the way we've been made, so we cover ourselves up. There's spiritual alienation. We run from God. God is no longer a, a natural part of our lives. God is alien. Worship is alien to our lives. And then there's alienation from one another. Adam and Eve began to blame each other and we've been blaming each other since that day. Nobody wants to take responsibility for anything. And then there's alienation from nature. Thorns and thistles, childbearing and pain. 
vocational alienation. And then physical degeneration as well. All of that came as a result of this fundamental failure. So the restoration from that failure therefore required another man to do what the first human being was supposed to do. That's why God became a man. That's why the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas is so much a part of the story. God himself became a man and there was one man, Jesus, who lived a life of total dependence on God and total loyalty to God. What Adam and Eve were supposed to do and didn't, he did. And so when he went to the death on the cross, it wasn't because of his own sins. The cross was not a defeat. That apparent failure was the most massive success of them all. (laughs) But because of Christ's death on the cross, the Bible tells us two things happen. First of all, our sins are forgiven because he took the penalty of our rebellion on him. And secondly, it was a victory over Satan. (laughs) It was a victory over the one who incites us to failure. Whether that sin is our own sin or the sin of humanity that causes some things to happen to us. That's how he breaks the power. So that apparent failure was in fact the most colossal success in the world in order to address the most colossal failure in the world. And so that's how the journey starts. The journey starts by bowing down at the foot of the cross to this one who did not stay on the cross but who rose again. And the resurrection, Easter, is the guarantee that that was not defeat but victory. In all these dimensions we've talked about. And then as we bow to Him as Lord, not only does the forgiveness go so deep that the power of failures is broken, but the empowering goes deep enough that we recover our destinies and every one of us becomes a rock and a shepherd. Rocks support and shepherds feed. That's the destiny for every single person that comes to Jesus. We become supports for others, we become feeders of others as He becomes our rock and our support. That's the story of Easter. Now the ball is in your court. For some of you, to experience this for the first time in your life, or at least begin thinking about it. And for others of us who have known him, but have been debilitated by failures, failures that remain lodged within our brain because of the zygarnic effect, not neutralized by any success. Failures that others will not let us forget about. Failures for which we cannot have a second chance like in marriage or in parenting or what have you. Today is the day when the power of those failures can be broken. Will you join me as we pray together? More than anything else, Jesus, I want to thank you for your perseverance with us. It was ultimately you who pursued Peter and found him. It was you that found him and not him that found you. And for every one of us here, and you know each of our hearts, you know the road that we need to take to get to the foot of the cross. To have our eyes open to realize the good news that an empty cross and an empty tomb communicate to us. Open our eyes and open our ears to see you no longer hanging on a cross, no longer rotting in a tomb, but risen Lord of the universe, 
risen and compassionate Savior for people who need you. So this morning we offer up our failures to you. The failure to live a life of dependence on you, but instead a life of independence. We offer the failures that have come about because of our own boasting and our arrogance and our self-confidence. We offer the failures that have come about because of other people's damaging work in our lives that we had no control over. We pray that this morning you will give us the gift of faith to believe that a risen Savior is the one who can affect the failures even deeper than they themselves. Who can restore our destinies. Who can once again give us a new name. A rock. Who can once again give us a new commission to become sustainers and feeders of people. That life from now on might become a life that is marked by meaning and purpose and significance because it is no longer an inward focused life. This is a miracle of Easter we ask you to accomplish again and again as often as is needed this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Just want to close with a benediction and again if you're, if you're not familiar with that a benediction simply comes from two Latin words which means good words and in prayers we speak to God in benedictions we bless one another <laughs> and as uh, I was thinking of the blessing I, I thought of Jesus again one of the most common responses people had to him was how come this man speaks words like this the common people heard him gladly so this is my blessing for you, is that you will forget everything that you heard here this morning that wasn't from Jesus. <laughs> and that every word that was from Jesus will continue to get amplified by other events, by other words, by other thoughts that come to your mind until you discover all the wealth, all the peace that comes from the forgiveness of failures and sin in Jesus. Go in Jesus' name. Amen.